Hey there, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. You are now tuned in to the Kaderna Podcast. Thanks for listening today. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and we've got an awesome topic that we're going to be going over. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a history buff, uh, certainly passionate about economics, but economics invades every aspect of life. And so I know typically we're going over a specific topic or subject matter relevant to investing or insurance, anything in personal finance and business, of course. But today what we're going to do is really take a 10,000 foot view of the entire landscape and figure out how economical thinking impacts every decision every day all around the globe. Okay, and I'm talking from microeconomics, which is you, your household, your small business, and the decision as simple as are we going to go grab McDonald's tonight or do we want to go out for steaks and lobster? Right? That is an economic decision that you are making. And we'll fast forward all the way to macroeconomics of talking about international finance between multinational corporations, politicians, uh, municipalities, states, governments, and how all these different players interact with one another. And then again, how that trickles back down to the micro level of you and I. All right. So I think this is something that you might be saying, you know, I'm an economics buff and I can't wait to hear more. Or you might say it's not really of interest to me. Um, you know, I'm more into kind of the, the quick, hard advice. But I got to tell you, this is of interest to everyone because nobody escapes the power of economics. OK, so without further ado, we're going to dive into, you know, essentially what it is, the different areas, the different schools of thought and how it's impacting you uh, directly and indirectly. All right, so as a starting point, for a lack of a better segue, I think when a lot of people hear economics or the economy, several concepts might come to mind, but two of the most prevalent today is going to be the idea of socialism, and on the total other end of the spectrum, the ideal of capitalism, okay? They're seen as opposites by many people, and some one love, some, some love one side, some love the other. Uh, there's a lot of middle ground there, but I think we really need to understand what those are, and then we can certainly go into some of the other aspects of economics. So socialism, what exactly is socialism? Socialism, defined by the uh, Webster Dictionary, is, and I quote, any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. Okay, in summary, it's various economic or political theories that are for collective or governmental ownership in their administration of production and goods. Okay, so centralized, all right, one government controlling all those different uh, production and distribution of goods and owning everything within that state. Okay, that is socialism. All right, socialism for a very long time had kind of a bad connotation attached to it. But lately, since 2008, has gained a lot of traction, especially right here in America, okay? What was once for so long considered taboo, a, a politician would, here in the States would never even want to associate themselves with socialism. Uh, we just saw Bernie Sanders run for president uh, the last time around, and under the age of 30, over 2 million people voted for Bernie Sanders, who identifies himself as a socialist, okay? 
So not only has it gained traction, but again, over 2 million people under the age of 30, we're seeing a lot of young professionals um, have a propensity to lean towards socialism, right? Furthermore, YouGov, again, who does international studies and, and polls throughout the world, noticed that 44% of people between the ages of 16 and 29 would prefer socialism over capitalism, all right? So again, what was once thought of as taboo, now we're seeing this young generation, uh, many of them, 44%, according to this poll, prefer socialists to a capitalist society, okay? However, and why I'm really doing this podcast, this episode today, if in that same exact study they dug a little further, if you read through it, only 33% of all respondents were able to correctly define socialism, all right, with multiple choice opportunities there. So we're seeing a lot of people prefer socialism, but then when it comes to, well, what is it? A lot of folks don't know exactly what it is, all right? And right in line with that, if you're saying, well, YouGov is one study, Gallup, another huge polling agency, in 2016 showed that 55% of 18 to 29-year-olds had a positive view of socialism, okay? So kind of in line with the previous poll. Even more so that now, 55% of these young professionals are pro-socialism. However, in the same exact poll, over 90% of respondents favored entrepreneurship as a career path. So if you understand anything about economics, you're probably saying to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. Socialism and entrepreneurship go together like oil and vinegar. If, if you want to be an entrepreneur, an innovator, a business owner, then socialism and being told what to do, what to do via the government uh, or whatever party, they don't go together. They don't jive. So again, you're hearing our respondents of all these polls, either A, kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth, or B, not totally understanding what socialism truly is, okay? So just to stick on this subject right now of socialism, if we look back in time of why it had such a negative connotation, all right, two parties underneath the umbrella of socialism uh, are commonly identified as fascism and communism, okay? So fascism is socialism, but socialism is not fascism, okay? It's kind of like the square and the rectangle. So what fascism is, is a, a political philosophy or movement or regime that exalts nation and sometimes race above the individual and stands for a centralized autocratic government, often headed by a dictator, okay? It can involve severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition, all right? The state telling the business or the individual what they must do, all right? This, in most recent memory, this was, you know, Chile and Argentina in the late 1900s. Uh, and then going back to where it was very negative was the Nazi party, you know, under Adolf Hitler and uh, Benito Mussolini when he was leading Italy. These were fascist governments, okay? So they were socialist, but that doesn't mean that all socialist parties or governments are fascist. Communism, often confused with, confused with fascism. Communism, again, according to Webster's, is defined as a system in which goods are owned in common and are available to all as needed. Okay, 
So all people are the same, so there are no classes. They're just all people working for the government. Communism very much today is still alive and well, and you'll find that in North Korea, um, recently the Soviet Union, uh, Cuba, Laos, and Russia uh, all identify as communist states, okay? So again, they're socialist, but that doesn't mean that all socialists are communists, okay? That's more of a kind of severe iteration of socialism. So that's what socialism is, okay? Kind of makes sense, all right? Centralized redistribution of wealth and goods um, where the government or this one party is going to kind of control everything, all right? On the flip side, let's look all the way over at capitalism, okay? So capitalism is an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods by investments and are determined by private decision prices, production, and distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market, okay? So again, what is capitalism? In summary, it's an economic system guided by the private ownership of goods and investments and dictated again by private decision, decision according to prices, production, and distribution of goods, all really based upon competition within a free marketplace, all right? So totally different than that centralized control we find in socialism. So which is good, which is bad? You know, that debate can certainly rage on, but we need to know what the differences are, all right? What are some capitalist societies that we can point to today? I'll give you a couple of the most notable. Number one, the United States of America has certainly from day one identified as a capitalist free society, all right? But what are some of the other ones out there? According to the 2017 Economic Freedom of the World Index, the most capitalist country is Hong Kong. All right, we're certainly seeing that clash in the news today where you have a free capitalist society, Hong Kong, right in the middle of a communist socialist society of China. And they're just that little glimmer of capitalistic hope within kind of the huge Chinese uh, sea, if you will. So Hong Kong, number one. Number two was Singapore, right? In America, which often people like to tag as this capitalist, you know, rich, wealthy, greedy country sometimes, we hear that in the news, America didn't even make the top 10 of the most capitalist societies, okay? The United States of America was actually number 12 on that list, all right? So the reason I bring this all up is it's a good launch pad to understand what kind of society a... Uh, state or a country adheres to, all right? And what we'll find is that most states out there or governments are somewhere in the middle, okay? Now, while America certainly defines itself as capitalist, um, you'll find a lot of socialists say it's 100% capitalist, and that's exactly what America is. That's not true. We're not this kind of laissez-faire capitalism here. We're a government that taxes, you know, perhaps 40% or more of our income, all right? True capitalism doesn't involve any taxes, okay? Here we are taxing up to 40% of income. We're a government that in many instances controls the medical care we receive, regulates business so thoroughly that, that many large firms or companies have to go uh, kind of employ their own department of compliance to adhere to all these rules and regulations. 
a government that controls the money supply, you know, through the Federal Reserve, uh, sets the bank reserve ratios, regulates stock offerings, margin ratios, home constructions and building permits, determines what pharmaceuticals and medical innovations can be sold here in America, operates schools and universities, runs a passenger rail system, uh, forbids offensive speech in many respects, sometimes intervenes with the diet that we're able to pursue, subsidizes agricultural and, and green, I'm putting that in quote, green businesses, imposes tariffs on many foreign trade partners, as we're seeing right now, again, with China, uh, and decides when businesses may merge or may not merge to some expense. Um, so we're seeing a lot of things here that are remotely consistent with capitalism. Everything I just listed is something that you would find in a socialist society. Okay, so what America essentially is, is a combination of these two concepts that has always identified and leaned towards capitalism, but has certainly made some concessions, if you will, on the socialist spectrum. Okay, even in respect to healthcare, guys, the American Hospital Association noted that there has been over $620 billion in charity care since the new millennium, since 2000. All right. So when people say, oh, America doesn't even, you know, needs public health care, you know, that, that's really what was a socialist ideal. Well, we have a little bit of that already. I mean, if you can't afford any care, even if you're here illegally in the States and you have a cold, you know, you'll find that plenty of times in the ER of a big hospital and they have to treat you. They can't just kick you out the door. They have to take care of you to some extent there. And that falls within that $620 billion of charity care uh, that I just referenced. All right. So that's a little bit of, uh, you know, where we are today. And you're probably saying at this point, well, which is good and which is bad? Um, what history has shown us is and a lot of people want to debate this to death. We have never really seen a true socialist economy succeed over time, right? Uh, you can look recently at, at India had suffered, you know, decades of poor growth in a socialist society. And then in the 90s, switched to capitalism. And today they have the largest middle class in the world, okay? What capitalism is, is it's a concept that's guided 100% by incentives, okay? So what that is, is that's supply and demand. All right. Price is going to be determined by market forces, consumer behavior, all right, the profit and loss of a company, and private property. Okay. So that's that is incentives. And I think most people understand what incentives are. We should be rewarded for good and punished for evil. And that's what capitalism kind of boils down to in an economic sense. All right. So in the socialist uh, you know, sense, we, we want to look at some examples there. Again, what they're saying is that the government should provide for basic services for free or at a huge discount, right? We see a lot of that in Central or South America, um, Serbia, Portugal, Northern Ireland. These are some modern-day socialist societies, okay? So you can just look at the state, not the state of the state, but the state of those countries as a good case study, right? So you, you have to sort of think about these things. And then if you look at Sweden... Um, many people that are pro-socialism like to look at Sweden as the socialist model. They're actually a bit of a hybrid because, yes, they do provide, you know, tax vouchers for education um, and they have high taxes, correct? But they have almost no business regulation, 
okay, which is very, again, opposite or contrary to the socialist ideal. Sweden does not even have a minimum wage, okay, which is kind of like at the forefront of controlling, uh, you know, what companies can do. If we look at France, again, uh, kind of pointed to as another socialist, they have the highest tax revenue to GDP, right? A 46.2% tax revenue to GDP, which is the highest in the developed world, according to the World Population Review. All right, so that's France. Again, we can look at them as another case study for when we start to really flirt with socialism, all right? Now, if, if we come back here, again, kind of looking at the capitalist world with a hint of socialism in the United States of America, I think minimum wage gives us a, some really good insight to government butting in, if you will, uh, in, in an economic sense of controlling what people can pay one another. According to the National Review, in 2007, the Fair Minimum Wage Act raised the minimum wage from $5.15 an hour to $7.25. Okay, I can't believe that that was just in 2007, uh, where now you're hearing, you know, $15 an hour thrown around. So in 2007, when that act was passed to raise the minimum wage, again, on the surface, that sounds fantastic. Everybody's going to be earning a little bit more, at least at that, that floor, that minimum. However, if we look at what happened in Puerto Rico, or we look at what happened in other American territories, such as uh, the America Samoa, um, their employment dropped 30% after that act was passed, okay? So now you found that, you know, America Samoa or Puerto Rico were saying that they were going to be solely dependent on government expenditures as essentially their private economy evaporated because they could not afford to pay these employees, these workers, that higher rate now, all right? So... That's where you might see, you know, in Puerto Rico, for instance, the costs for a hotel room or a vacation are far greater than they would be in Jamaica or a comparable uh, destination. And the reason being largely in part due to the, the minimum wage that now those hotels and so forth and resorts have to pay their workers. So again, it, it sounds great, but we need to think about what are those unintended consequences there. All right. If I was to tell you, all right, we take a step back with all this information that I just shared. And I said, we could provide a society that had free education, that had free health care, that had a very high minimum wage for all citizens. Okay, those things, they all sound fantastic. All right, that certainly plays on our emotions. I think we would all vote for that. I mean, who wouldn't? If we could have that, that sounds like a great world. Whereas if we looked at another option, plan B, that said we're going to compete, there's going to be winners and losers, you're going to have to earn some of these things, they'll be dictated by incentives. Now, all of a sudden, as I'm throwing out some of those concepts, that sounds pretty harsh. That, that doesn't sound all that appealing. As we know, the first one is the whole kind of marketing plan of socialism, and the second is, in a way, the reality of capitalism. So socialism is very easy to, to mention those benefits. But then again, when we dive under the hood and we say, well, A, how can we afford these programs? B, how are we going to be able to uh, not only afford them, but worry about any other consequences that they might have now that we're removing incentives? 
You know, why are we going to start a business if we're not going to own it? Why are we going to create an idea here when we can't be rewarded where we could go to Hong Kong or Singapore and be taken care of in a much greater fashion? So again, it all comes back to some of these incentives, things to think about. So we just went over a lot of, of economics here. I totally uh, get that. Hopefully I'm not overwhelming you guys, but we wanna have at least a cursory knowledge of this material because it does play down to the individual. And you might be saying, well, how? How, how does government intervention help or hurt me and my family? Well, let's take a look at some of the things that people are dealing with today. We can start right with student loans, okay? I think everybody out there in America, could, in America today could say, you know, the student loan issue is just a crisis right now. The exorbitant amount of debt that's outstanding and that these young graduates have to immediately begin repaying while trying to get their feet on the ground, it's, it's an epi epidemic in some senses. So we're saying, all right, well, if there's an issue here, there does have to be an enemy on the other side, right? And that's these places of higher education, these colleges that are charging an arm and a leg for these beautiful campuses that are then putting, you know, little Timmy and Johnny and Susie in so much debt. Well, it wasn't that big of a deal until, again, the government got involved and said, we'll get into the student lending space and pretty much be able to give a blank check on an unsecured debt with nothing behind it to this young individual that's trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. And obviously the colleges on the opposite side said, okay, if now all of a sudden there's a blank checkbook to walk through our doors, we can make admission, housing, etc., cetera, uh, that much more expensive. And we can offer so many more perks and really draw out the, the length of education to some extent, knowing that there's a uh, unlimited fund that's going to be provided for this, okay? Think about it, if you're a home builder and you could either build someone, you know, a, a one-bedroom studio or a mansion, a, a 20,000 square foot mansion on three acres of land, if you're a home builder, which, which of those accounts do you wanna pick up, all right? Well, in, in the real world, any Joe just can't go buy that, you know, gigantic mansion. We have to be you know, credit worthy and have the assets and the ability and the cash flow to do so, right? To get underwritten by a private lender to get that mortgage, all right? Now, imagine if the government came in and said, well, we want everyone to be able to own a home and we're willing to lend as much as we want. Now, everybody wants to go get those monster mansions and there would certainly be builders lining up to kind of fill that need, just as colleges have done for us. So we see what government and intervention, which had a great idea. They were going to help people who maybe couldn't otherwise, which is most nowadays, afford higher education. And now they've done that and they've raised the cost of education dramatically. And now people, instead of owing a school or a lender, are owing the government, okay, which they can't default on. So that's a whole nother issue going on. Um, but think, it, it, again, it invades every aspect of life. The Fed, okay, they lower interest rates to try and stimulate economic growth. Now, all of a sudden, maybe you're not earning as much on that savings account that you would have otherwise. Now, all of a sudden, the insurance companies are having to change how they manage their portfolio or lower dividends and interest rates because what the Fed has done, all right? Conversely, maybe now you can go buy a bigger house because that mortgage payment's not going to be as much as we've got lower financing costs and 
uh, you know, now encouraged to borrow and invest and kind of accelerate that growth, okay? But when then rates are too low, it can spur excessive growth, subsequent inflation, and then eventually reduce that purchasing power and undermine the sustainability that we wanted in that economic expansion. Okay, so again, now there's too much growth. The Fed can come back in and raise interest rates to slow inflation and try and retain, you know, kind of return to a sustainable level. So in every aspect, even when we talk about a capitalist society, we have some intervention. So ultimately, when we think about economics, we want to understand this not just from a uh, political standpoint, which it certainly is. We want to understand it from a tax standpoint, because if we're going to have anything afforded to us by government, someone has to pay for it, okay, be it semi-capitalist, semi-socialist, that's a reality. And then we have to think about what does it do to the markets, okay, when we start to raise or lower taxes, raise or lower interest rates, what is that doing to your 401k, to your portfolio, to your dollars in your checking account, to your money that's outstanding on that credit card, all right, it, again, economics, which seems so huge, comes all the way back down to the individual. All right. So I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. We'll definitely have more episodes for those that really want to understand economics. And I think it can help then guide a lot of the personal finance conversation of how am I going to create a plan for myself and my family that's going to survive under the broadest amount of circumstances possible understanding these different economic philosophies and how they're going to impact my country, my state, my town, my school, uh, and my money at the end of the day. All right. Thank you very much for tuning in, guys. This has been episode 15 of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Please spread the good word. Uh, if you have questions or you want to suggest other guests on the show, Send us an email at thecadernapodcast at gmail.com. We'll definitely give it some thought. We'll get back to you for sure. And uh, check us out, you know, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Tune in on YouTube um, and let everybody know, you know, that they can get this, uh, this little bit of knowledge for free at a good price. All right. I love you guys. And thanks for tuning in. It's Brian Kaderna signing off on the Kaderna Podcast. See you next week. The Kaderna Podcast is for informational purposes only. Advice should be relied upon only when coordinated with professional advice. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, social security, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional, as well as the social security department regarding your individual situation. Links to external sites are provided for your convenience and locating related information and services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. The living balance sheet and the living balance sheet logo are service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York, copyright 2005 to 2019, Guardian. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities products and services and advisory services are offered through PAS, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor, 973-244-4420. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, PAS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC are not affiliates or subsidiaries of PAS or Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of the Guardian. PAS is a member of FINRA SIPC. 
2019 8, 4, 8, 7, 4, 3, 9, expiration date October 2021.